0: This is Bach to Bach, the podcast opening up the world of classical music, one beer at a time. And today, you're going to learn about concertos. <laughs> You've probably heard Kevin or I use the word concerto at some point in the, uh, the many episodes that we've produced to this point. But we haven't really talked about what a concerto is. So today's the day we are going to finally introduce you to really what is one of the more fun pieces of music in the classical world. And a concerto is just a, it's a concert. It's a chance for a solo performer to really show their stuff. picture Beyonce, but 200 years ago. So a concerto has morphed over time. A concerto started as a group of sacred works for voices or orchestra, but it's morphed to uh, to really a fun layout of pieces now. So we, you've heard us use the word movements before, and a movement just basically means a, a track on an album. If you're going to look for a modern day comparison. So a concerto nowadays is usually made up of three different movements. And quite often it's going to be a fast one, a slow one, and then another fast one to finish it off. It gives a performer a chance to really show his stuff and his, his breadth of playing. Or hers. We don't discriminate here on... Bach to Bach. Um, we're going to show you three separate concertos today. And we're going to start with one of my favorites. And that is the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto in E minor. The Mendelssohn Violin Concerto is a piece that I studied when I was 17 years old and is still one of my all-time favorites. It's a gateway, really, to a lot of more romantic uh, concertos of the time, Beethoven and others like that. But the Mendelssohn Concerto itself is, is one of the standard repertoire for violinists. Um, it was conceived in 1838, and although we've talked about Felix Mendelssohn and his sister before in our episode called Siblings, but this is the first time we're talking about Felix himself, and it took him six years to write this, and then another year before it was even premiered in 1845. Now, it follows the traditional form of fast, slow, fast in its movements, and it's actually, for the. it was one of the first pieces where the lead instrument, the the solo instrument, starts out right at the beginning. Normally in a concerto the orchestra will give a little bit of a theme beforehand and then the instrument will come in, but you'll hear right at the beginning that the violin starts out strong. You'll also hear that this is a, a concerto where the solos will play not only with but also against an orchestra, and that's important. It's not always them playing the same line with the orchestra behind them, but it will be the orchestra playing a piece and then dropping down in volume with only a few instruments staying in there while the performer carries on with their solo piece. And then the orchestra will come back in, uh, so listen for that, not only in this concerto but in other concertos as well. So you're going to hear recurring themes throughout the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. And you're going to hear them especially in a part of the piece called the cadenza. Now, a cadenza is a chance for the soloist to have the orchestra drop away. They control the tempo. They control everything. It's really a chance to almost improvise. Most composers, most soloists, will have a, a cadenza written for them that they either they've composed or uh, as a soloist or the composer themselves put together. But there are times where a, a soloist will actually make stuff up on the spot as well. And then from the cadenza, it goes right into the second movement. This is one of those concertos that was performed a taka, which just means without a pause between movements. One just flows right into the next. So we're going to listen to excerpts of all three movements with performer Ray Chen. Have a listen. And then we move into the andante. And then finally, the most exciting part, the Allegro Molto Vivacci.
1: Every concerto always has a different soloist performing on it, whether it's from 200 years ago or to present day. There are soloists all across the world performing these pieces in their own individual way, so the way Ray Chen performed the Mendelssohn is completely different than how another performer from halfway across the world would perform the same piece of music. Going into this next concerto is my favorite cellist of all time and who I've named my cello after. This is Jacqueline Dupré. Jacqueline was one of the five great cellists of all time, and she was the only great female cellist of all time. We're going to be listening to Haydn's Cello Concerto Number no. 1 in C major. Now, just like what Matt said, this is the gateway concerto into learning all the other more advanced concertos and more romantic concertos that come after it. The Haydn Cello Concerto Number no. 1 in C major was actually composed between 1761 and 1765. But it was presumed lost until 1961. So that means for 200 years, people didn't really know it existed. There were little snippets that Haydn wrote in his his, his personal notebook of him keeping track of different melodies he wrote, and the opening melody line from the cello is something he had at the very front of that notebook. But no one knew that until 200 years later. Now this piece also has a cadenza just like the Mendelssohn did. It's a little less flashy than the Mendelssohn. The Mendelssohn is much more romantic, bombastic, and also because it was written in a later time period. But because this was written so early on, this is still fairly a very classical piece and not romantic in nature. However, how every cellist plays it, it really varies in its sense of romanticism. The way Jacqueline Dupre plays it, based on her name alone, can kind of tell you how she will definitely approach this piece and perform it. So again, the same structure applies to this as it did in the Mendelssohn. It's going to have a fast movement in the beginning, uh, almost a little bit militaristic. Um, and then there's cadenza at the end of the first movement. The second movement is this beautiful, slow, almost lullaby. And then the third movement kind of just like you little, uh, you know, a firecracker underneath them and it just flies off and takes off as fast as possible and shows off every bit of skill from the highest register of the cello to the lowest register. Let's listen to excerpts of the Haydn Cello concerto number one in C major, performed by Jacqueline Du Pré.
0: So you listen to these back-to-back, but we've actually compiled 90 straight minutes of great music for you to listen to in this episode. That would be nine zero. Nine zero. Yeah, not 19. And in Spanish, that would be noventa. How much is that? Minutos. Very good. Very good. So not only is this now a classical music podcast, we're also doing uh, foreign language podcasting as well. Well, just of those two words in Spanish. Now they good. know. So... We wanted to uh, draw a little parallel for you, and we are trying out what Esquire magazine, and take that with a grain of salt, uh, has called uh, potentially one of the best uh, IPAs in America. Now, that's saying something, is we come from a very strong IPA state.
1: Yeah, and, and I've not only state, but region of the country. IPAs are what New England is all about.
0: Especially nowadays. And this one... It was first released in 2001, so when I graduated high school. So this is not some hopping on the bandwagon trend IPA. This is a Dogfish Head 90-Minute IPA. This is the first time we've had it, and Kev, I think we can both agree we're not, no, it's not markedly either. impressed. Now, whether that's because we're used to the super, super hoppy Well, it's numbers. not the super
1: hoppy. I think I, I lean towards the unfiltered IPAs. Ah, uh, okay. So the skunkier IPAs is where I lean more towards. However, there is still a very off aftertaste with it.
0: So this is an American Double, or also known as an Imperial IPA. They they talk about its continuous hopping, so that it gives what they call a pungent but not crushing hop flavor, which maybe because our, our palates have been a little bit changed, drinking the IPAs that we drink, we don't enjoy it as much, but... I'm looking down at the bottom of their, uh, their website where they're talking about the experience and the food pairings. And, and honestly, just my gut says that they're reaching a little bit on, on what they're saying. They're saying you're the food pairings, pork chops, beef, grilled fish, that's great. Uh, and then they drop in frites, focaccia, split pea soup, and escargot. I mean, that uh, having had all those things reaching a little bit but the part that really throws me off is when they talk
1: about the flavor of the beer yes and these are all things I don't enjoy except for the last one but so brandied fruitcake
0: and fruitcake's the one thing your grandma brings for Christmas that everyone pretends to eat and doesn't actually like uh, and maybe even loses a filling to yeah. you know. And and raisin and the other one raisiny
1: raisiny. First of all, I didn't know that was a word.
0: It's not, and it's a terrible word. Not yeah. really a
1: big fan of it. Now citrusy. It. That's that's a little yeah. closer, but I just don't. I don't get the citrus taste with it now.
0: Yeah, it's and again maybe our palates have been dulled a little bit, and it's not. It's not often we come right out and say that we don't enjoy a beer, but for a beer that's rated so highly on Beer Advocate, it's got a ninety-four, uh, and 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 uh, for. Having such a great public view of you know, Esquire calling it one of the best IPAs in America, we're not really digging it.
1: Now on the opposite spectrum, I've had both. They after making the ninety minute, they made the hundred twenty minute, yep, and the sixty minute IPA, and I've had both of those and I enjoy both of those quite a bit.
0: What was different about those that um, again? This lacks?
1: The, the, well, the sixty minute was much more of a pale ale, so it wasn't as um, it was much more clean, so it wasn't as much of an amber. Uh, Amber ale, it was just much more clean, um, uh, pale, and then again, the 120 was much more in the vein of what kind of beers I didn't have to drink, a little more intense IPAs. Yeah, um, this was just sat right in the middle and was not something that I would ever go back to. But if you, you know, go onto the website dogfish.com and you look at each beer and the pairing, the experience at the bottom, you know, if you are into those food pairings, if you're into those kind of aromas and flavors. Then, then give it a shot.
0: And they've got a lot of choice. They what's the great thing about uh, dogfish is that they do produce a wide array of flavors. And again, beer is like wine. So, and, and and like a whole bunch of other things, everyone's palate's a little bit different, and what may taste a bit off to us may be exactly what you're looking for. So again, our our word isn't gospel here. We're just telling you what we're used to and and uh, and how we feel about this. But um, again, we're drinking the the ninety minute IPA by Dogfish Brewing, and and for us is. Not really hitting the spot. And I mean, um, it's come from Delaware. So, I mean, there's only so many things they can offer. Ah, the parking lot state. Uh. <laughs> so, sorry, Delaware. If there are, actually, I don't know if we have ever had a listener from Delaware. So, if you guys know, we, we get breakdowns of uh, where everyone who listens to our podcast is from. And we've had people as far away as Japan, uh, Kabul, Afghanistan, um, Russia. We actually have quite a few listeners from Russia, uh, across the world. But we but not have, not have anyone from Delaware. So you know what? Screw
1: you, Delaware. However, if you want to support Dogfish Brewing Company, you can check them out at dogfish.com. Fast forward about 140 years from the Haydn Cello Concerto, and you have composer Jean Sibelius premiering his one and only concerto he wrote as a composer in his entire career. This would be the Violin Concerto in D minor, Opus 47. This piece was premiered in 1904 at the Helsinki Institute of Music in Helsinki, Finland, which is now, oddly enough, called the Sibelius Academy. Now, this initial premiere was an utter disaster for several reasons. One, the soloist, Viktor Novacek, wasn't really a soloist. He was an accomplished violinist, but he was more known as a teacher in the area outside Helsinki, Finland. Now, when he premiered this piece... He did not have the skills necessary to perform it well, let alone the timeline, so you put all of that together, and it was the recipe for disaster. That being said, Sibelius the next year took it to Berlin and had conductor Ricard Strauss – may have heard of him before – perform it with the Berlin Court Orchestra, and this premiere is what launched Sibelius' Violin Concerto to what it is today. Most concertos usually have the soloist as a dominant role and the orchestra as a supportive and accompaniment role. But here in the Sibelius, the orchestra and the soloist have equal roles, where they play off each other and build a full sound through their work together, not as separate. What you'll notice throughout the movements is that there is a lot of use of dissonance, meaning notes that clash against each other, but then eventually resolve. Take a listen to excerpts of the Sibelius Violin Concerto in D minor Opus 47 and listen to every little nuance the composer has to offer. Hopefully this has been another educational episode of Bach to Bach. We'll see
0: you next time. Cheers. Cheers.
1: To listen to our full 90-minute concerto playlist, go to our website bachtobach.com. Subscribe to Bach to Bach on iTunes and follow us on social media at Bach to Bach.